Today, the comics guys explain what's up with Captain Marvel. So Marvel is a name synonymous with comics, and as it turns out, it's also synonymous to a multitude of different characters. And to start, we're going to have to go all the way back to the 1940s with a publication that's not around anymore named Fawcett. Darren? Yeah, the first character called Captain Marvel. Well, even he didn't start with the name Captain Marvel, just to make things that much more confusing. But the first Captain Marvel who existed for it is the one who is better known to fans today under the name Shazam. But for many years in the comics, the character's name was Captain Marvel. And Shazam is just the magic word that he said to get his powers. That character first appeared in a comic published by Fawcett Publications in 1939. So we're talking about just within a year after Superman first appearing in Action Comics number one right? The very earliest days of superhero comics. Fawcett put out what they call an Ashcan comic, which is a black and white version of a actual comic book that was published just, it wasn't intended for the newsstands. It was done to establish copyright to the character. And that comic was called Flash Comics. And it starred a superhero who was kind of similar to Superman in that he was this big, strong guy wearing a cape and circus tights who flew around and performed these amazing stunts. And he was called Captain Thunder. And this comic never actually got published, not least of which because between the time that they made the Ashcan and they were actually ready to put out the comic, DC had created the character called The Flash. And so Flash Comics was already a title that was in use and they couldn't use it. So they changed the name of the comic to Wiz Comics. Uh, Not to be confused with The Wizard. Yeah, he hasn't even shown up yet for it. So this is, you know, the the original title of, you know, the first title published by Fawcett. They also decided or learned they couldn't use the name Captain Thunder because Jungle Comics by a publisher called Fiction House featured a character named Terry Thunder, who was in fact a captain in the British Army. And so that name was too close. So they had to kind of like cast around for a replacement name for Thunder, which at least made sense from a guy who gets his powers by being struck by a lightning bolt. Captain Thunder at least kind of makes sense as a character name. And eventually they hit on Captain Marvel, which was not a name that was in use by anybody. So Captain Marvel finally made his first appearance in February of 1940 in Wiz Comics number two. There was no Wiz Comics number one because they picked up the numbering from Flash Comics number one that never actually got published. So in fact, Captain Marvel's first appearance in the comics is in Wiz Comics number two, not number one. That's a weird choice. Doug, is there any reasoning that they would pick up the numbering off an unpublished comic? Literally for their own interior paperwork. There There is no publication reason except to say that it was not uncommon for publishers not to start with a number one back then, 
because number one meant that this was an untried comic, right? Nobody had known whether or not this would sell. If you've bothered to make a number two, then probably that meant that number one was successful. So there are less scrupulous comic book publishers would start with a number higher than one and try to fool distributors into thinking that there had been earlier issues. Wow, that is something that so you couldn't do today. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, today number ones are collectible, right? Like today, a number one is a big deal for this. You want right, this couldn't copy. and wouldn't exactly. But back then, it was a not uncommon thing. It was you know like having a number one did not guarantee that there would ever be a number two, right? So you wanted to kind of like convince distributors at the time that your comics were you know a, a viable line that they should keep buying for their newsstands and stuff. DC tended not to do this because DC was already pretty successful, right? DC's first major superhero comic action number one sold one zillion copies right i mean it was just an enormous success out the door so they didn't mind you know they never felt like they had to do those kind of shenanigans faucet started a little smaller now to faucet's credit for this captain marvel was also a smash hit right the idea of this boy billy batson he's 10 to 12 years old which was the target market for superhero comic readers at the time. They assumed their average reader was somewhere between 10 and 12 years old. And so he travels down into this mysterious cave in a subway, meets a wizard, learns a magic word that turns him into a grown-up, into the best grown-up in the world, right? Like he's the strongest and wisest and fastest and et cetera, et cetera. And he gets these powers as gifts from the most bizarre pantheon of gods that you ever saw collected in one place. The character was extremely popular. And very quickly was a rival to Superman in sales and even in some years outsold Superman. Like Captain Marvel was the number one selling comic pretty much throughout World War II. It sold better to the army. The PX stores to, did better numbers in Captain Marvel than any DC comic. And Fawcett had a line of other characters, none of which were anywhere near close to Captain Marvel in popularity. The only other titles that Fawcett had that really made money were the Captain Marvel spinoffs, right? He had his cousin, Mary, Mary Marvel got powers. And then his best friend also got superpowers and became Captain Marvel Jr. And then there were a bunch of other assorted, there were Lieutenant Marvels and a bunch of other Marvels kicking around up there. So a whole Marvel kind of, family. Exactly. And that set of comics as a group were literally the single most popular superhero comics of the 1940s. Captain Marvel actually was the first superhero to get a movie. The Captain Marvel serial comes out in 1941, well before either Batman or Superman get a movie. He was the he was the number one guy for this. And so this character is just phenomenally popular and phenomenally successful. So, of course, DC tried to kill them, <laughs> as they do. <laughs> so let's quickly talk about DC's history of lawsuits defending Superman, right? The first time they go to court to attack a rival of Superman was in 1939, only about a year into Superman's existence, another publisher called Fox Features had put out a comic starring a guy called Wonder Man. Is he the Marvel one as well, or is it a totally different nope. Wonder Man? Totally different character, just happened to have the same name. Gotcha. And basically Wonder Man is exactly Superman. He literally has, instead of a uh, blue costume with a red cape and red highlights, he has a red costume with a blue cape and blue highlights. And pretty much in all other ways, he looks exactly like Man, he has all of Superman's powers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Obvious, complete ripoff. It's just not very good. And so DC took them to court, and one of the people who had worked on the very earliest stories of Wonder Man 
was Will Eisner, who was the guy who went on to create the spirit and many other things, and is the guy the Eisner Awards are named after. And when he was a kid, he was working for Fox. And when they put him on the stands in the trial for this, they asked him, how did Wonder Man come about? And he said, well, my boss came to me one day and said, do a ripoff of Superman. We want a character who's just like Superman, but just a little different. And that basically won DC the trial, right? Like right there, like Eisner admitted on the stand that he had been told to copy Superman. And that basically drove Wonder Man out of business very quickly, right? Like they lost the case. Fox immediately gave up and stopped publishing Wonder Man. And, you know, I think they paid a few thousand dollars in fines to DC and that was over. DC then took on Fawcett, not over Captain Marvel at first. The first time they did it was over a character called Masterman, who had appeared in Master Comics. And he looked, once again, much more like Superman. He was much more obviously a strong guy in a cape whose secret identity was that he was a reporter, et cetera, et cetera. DC filed a lawsuit against Fawcett. And in this case, Fawcett's response to the lawsuit was, yeah, this guy isn't actually selling that well to us anyway. We'll just cancel him. We're not even going to fight you in court, right? You know, we'll just cancel it and surrender before the court case even starts, so which DC was kind of completely satisfied with. And so Masterman went away only having ever been published in like two issues, right? So at this point, DC's feeling pretty good about their legal history defending Superman, right? Like that you can't make a character who is an obvious ripoff of Superman. They're 2-0 and o effectively in, in court fights. So now they're going to get a little bit more aggressive attacking right. characters who are similar. Right. Well, they're kind of looking to see like who else is out there that's like this. Who else is potentially taking away our sales by having a character who's too close to ours, right? At this point, by now, it's 1941, and DC's got 10 or 15 different superheroes, right? So the fact that somebody puts on a costume and has superpowers is clearly not enough of a resemblance to Superman for anybody to have a legal court case, because then you would say, well, DC, you've got like, you know, what about Batman? What about The Flash? What about Green Lantern? Right. So if you're that those characters are clearly already established as being different enough from Superman to be okay. Right. So pretty much anybody else who has a character who has magic or who controls fire or something like that, whatever it is, those guys are clearly not close enough to Superman to be a problem. However, DC notices by mid 1941, by the time that Captain Marvel's movie and everything starts to come out, that holy crap, Captain Marvel is seriously eating into our sales. In fact, they're beating us in this. And Captain Marvel, he's a lot like Superman, right? Like he's a big guy with black hair and a skin-tight costume and a cape. And basically he's strong and he flies and he performs these feats of strength and speed. That's pretty close to our guy, right? We're going we're gonna to take him to court. We're going to take Fawcett to court again or, you know, for a first time, because like I said, Fawcett kind of backed out of the first time they went to the case. They're going to take on Fawcett again and say, Captain Marvel is in fact a ripoff of Superman. Well, at this point, Captain Marvel is a huge cash cow for Fawcett, right? Like they're not going to just give up this character who is selling them millions of copies every month on the stands. So they go out and- yeah, He's, he's know, no Masterman. Yeah, no, exactly right. Yeah, you've never heard of Masterman, right? But this guy, everybody's heard of. This guy's huge. And so Fawcett fought back this time. Fawcett actually spent some money and hired some lawyers and they went to court. This case between DC and Fawcett went on for years and years and years. It started in 1942 and ran into the early 1950s before it was finally resolved. And Fawcett's defense was 
basically had two parts to it. One, Captain Marvel is not a copy of Superman. He's different in these various ways, right? And then kind of like went out and listed all of the different things that were different about Captain Marvel from Superman. And then they had a two-part defense. Their second part was, even if he was, let's, you know, grant you the first one for it. The second part of our defense is Superman has been part of a newspaper strip for the last couple of years that DC had licensed Superman to another publisher. And that publisher may or may not have filed its copyrights and trademarks appropriately. So maybe DC doesn't even own the copyright to Superman, and we're going to fight you on that legal front as well. Now, this was pretty much everybody acknowledged was shenanigans to start out with, but that was kind of like Fawcett's like legal backup plan in case the judge had said that Captain Marvel was too close to Superman. They were planning to tie up this case by making DC go out and defend its copyrights and trademarks and see if they could find any place that DC had screwed that up so that they could, in fact, actually fight the case on a different level. So at that point, this, this battle goes on for years, runs through World War II, and then afterwards, at the end of World War II, superheroes, you know, all the soldiers are coming back from the war. Superheroes become kind of a less popular genre of comics, right? Like there are crime comics and horror comics and romance comics that are kind of taking away from these. But Superman and Captain Marvel, these are still two huge sellers, right? Like even though most superhero comics are starting to kind of die off, these two are still like are kind of a big deal. Fawcett, in 1950, they finally have the first ending of the case, basically. Fawcett wins on the second half of their fight. The first half, the judge says Captain Marvel is in fact an illegal copy of Superman. However, it doesn't matter because DC screwed up its trademark and copyrights doing the newspaper strip. And so therefore, DC has no legal right to defend this character because they don't actually own this character, right? Really? That is really? not something this I ever heard. What happened. This, is, this is what happened in the first case. DC appealed immediately, right, for this. During this time is when Mad Magazine did a famous cartoon and a famous strip in Mad Magazine called Super Duper Man versus Captain Marvels, right? Which kind of like made fun of this entire case because everybody in comics was following this, right? Like this is huge. The DC might lose the rights to Superman because they screwed up the trademarks and everything, right? So that was the DC appeals. The case goes back to court and is in court for another four years almost for this. In 1954, the DC won on appeal saying that DC's copyrights on the comics proved their intent to maintain copyrights on their characters and any errors that were made by the syndicates, by McClure syndicates, who were the people who had done the newspaper strip, were those of a licensee, not a partner, right? McClure didn't right. own anything about Superman. And so even if they fucked up their trademarks and their copyrights and everything, that didn't affect what DC's rights were. Right. So during that time, there's like a year then that DC doesn't own Superman. Right. Well, well um, there, there's a year in which it's uncertain, right? And there's oh, more okay. than a year in which it's uncertain because the case was under appeal, right? Gotcha. There's only about like the, between the time that like the first judge rules and DC puts in their appeal is only like two weeks. Okay. Right? I wasn't so sure if anyone were, tried to make a... Nobody else tried to do anything Superman about it comic. because... The, yeah, nobody tried to do anything about it because it happened so quickly. They were right back in court. Right. With a, you know, for a second round based on DC's appeal of the first one. Right. So they've now won 
DC's uh, reversed the outcome of this. They have reestablished that Superman is their character for this, and they have the right to. And they go back to the first part of the case, which is Captain Marvel is an illegal ripoff of Superman, right? At that point, Fawcett, rather than appealing themselves, the idea that Captain Marvel is not a ripoff of Superman, they decide, you know what, it's 1954, 1955, even Captain Marvel isn't selling that much anymore, right? Superheroes have fallen off so far. They're just not that popular. We're doing other comics that are making us more money for this. This is not worth the fight any longer. This fight has now been going on for 13 years, right? And so Fawcett, once DC wins its appeal, they basically give up. Fawcett abandons the rights to the characters for this, and they pay National Publications, which is the corporate masters of DC, $400,000 for their trouble. That's their fine for ripping off Superman in the first place. Now, obviously, the general consensus, a lot of people believe that is wrong. Captain Marvel is sufficiently different from Superman, especially in the idea that he's a kid who turns into an adult as opposed to Superman, who is the, the Clark Kent secret identity, etc., are all very different characters. But they went back to the powers and said, yeah, Captain Marvel's got the same powers as Superman. And hey, look at this. His number one bad guy is a little bald mad scientist guy. Right. And they started kind of like pull, pulling out all of these individual bits about the Captain Marvel character and convinced a bunch of judges who were not comic book fans that, yeah, that, that's an illegal ripoff. That's an illegal violation. So Fawcett abandons the character. They stop publishing uh, Captain Marvel comics. That entire set of comics, all the Marvel family stuff, all go out of print, all go out of business. And DC basically at that point is the last superhero publisher standing. Right. It's, it'll be another six or seven years before Marvel comes along. So right. this is the end of that version of Captain Marvel for now. Right. The Shazam Captain Marvel has now gone away. He's completely forgotten. So that leads to a couple of other interesting uses, right? The name Captain Marvel is now out of trademark, out of copyright. It's just nobody owns it, right? So there is a British publisher. And we talked about this in, the, in our last podcast for a little bit for us. This British publisher called Len Miller and Son. And they had a deal with Fawcett that they would reprint Captain Marvel comics in England, black and white versions of them, right? They would just get the files from them, publish them in black and white because color ink was too expensive for British printers at the time because the British economy was in the toilet. But, you know, post-war up till the early 50s, they would just republish black and white Captain Marvel comics and had a license to do that. And these were quite popular with the kids up there for it because they didn't have any British comics to compete with because there were no British publishers that had kind of survived the war. In 1953, that contract that Len Miller had with Fawcett came up to be renewed. And Fawcett at this point is deep into the second trial, right? Like in the second case, they kind of see the writing on the wall with these lawsuits. They're like, you know, Captain Marvel's not going to be around much longer. They decide not to renew the contract with Len Miller. They're just, okay, we're done. And Len Miller's like, well, crap, that was our best-selling reprint for this, right? Like, how are we going to, what, what are we going to do to make money off this? And so Len Miller hired a guy named Mick Anglo, who was a, a comic book writer for them, who created a ripoff version of Captain Marvel. And they called him Marvel Man. And he used more or less the same trade dress, the same logo, and basically recreated Captain Marvel as a completely new character, completely new in, you know, air quotes, where instead of being Billy Batson, now he's Mickey Moran. And Mickey Moran would transform into this heroic form by saying his magic word, which was Kimota, which is atomic backwards, 
instead of Shazam. And that would turn, he would, in a nuclear explosion, he would turn into this incredibly powerful guy called Marvel Man. And there was a young Marvel Man, and there was a kid Marvel Man, and there was a bald mad scientist bad guy. And in every way, it was basically a ripoff of Captain Marvel. And Marvel Man was tremendously popular from 1954 to, say, 59 or 60, right? This is still one of the best-selling comics in England. In 1959, British law changes, their import laws change, which allow U.S. comics to come directly to England. Now crappy UK reprints are no longer a big deal because they can get the real thing in color straight from America, right? And of course, the crappy British reprints in black and white are destroyed in the marketplace. They're destroyed on the, on the magazine rack by have suddenly we've got actual, you know, we've got Fantastic Four, we've got Spider-Man, we've got The Flash, we've got Justice League, right? All of these real American comics completely wipe out the UK comic book line. They just couldn't compete. Not just Marvel, but DC and Archie and everything else. And Miller goes bankrupt in 1963 and they stop publishing Marvel. Des Skin, who was the guy who was the editor at Warrior, acquired the rights from Len Miller to the Marvel Man character in 1982 for Warrior Comics. And the first guy he hires to write it is Alan Moore, who is a complete nobody. He's, you know, 25 or whatever. He's working in an office somewhere with no particular, like, big name. And Alan Moore takes Marvel Man and brings him to the modern day in that kind of style that is exactly the way that he will do Watchmen later for this of, I'm going to take this campy old character and I'm going to present him in these modern day situation. And he's going to be violent and it's going to be sexy and it's going to have adult concepts in it and everything. And he basically uses the Marvel Man character to, to tell that kind of deconstructed superhero story for the first time. Gary Leach is the first artist for it. And then Alan Davis actually is the second artist, the one who kind of becomes favorite, famous with him. And that series lasts until it goes from 1982 to 1984. Moore gets in a fight with Des Skin in 84 and he quits. Skin then licenses those characters to Eclipse Comics in the US. They change the name from Marvel Man to Miracle Man so that they don't get into trouble with Marvel anymore and avoid any fighting with Marvel Comics, and start reprinting Moore's comics in America. Those become a surprise hit under Miracle Man. Moore gets signed to deal with Eclipse to come back and continue the series after the reprints. He writes 16 more issues of it going forward, and that's the Miracle Man run of the 80s that everybody knows today. That only like existed because of Fawcett's destruction, Fawcett ending its, its uh, corporate relationship, basically with Len Miller back in 1954. Without that, none of the Miracle Man, Marvel Man stuff would have ever happened. So that's one weird spinoff of these cases. Little Miracle Man mini history lesson. Right, exactly. So at the same time, or similarly for this, in America, there is a side publisher, there's a small comic book publisher whose name is Myron Fass. And Myron Fass owned a company called MF Enterprises, and basically what he was doing was creating rip-off versions of a bunch of famous superheroes and publishing a few comics starring them, hoping that people would get confused, right? It's like the guys on the Sci-Fi Channel, right? Who, who do the movies with the similar titles to Blockbusters. I forgot what their name is. Yeah. Right, like they did a mummy movie or a giant shark movie and whatever. So he has a bunch of dumb characters. He literally has a superhero called The Bat, right? And he's got another stretchy character called Elastic Man. And he's got an Adam ripoff who's called Tiny Man. 
right? He's, he has, these are just terrible, terrible comics. And he notices that the name Captain Marvel is not in trademark anymore. Nobody owns that. Hey, that's a great name for a character. And so he creates, he republishes a comic uh, starring a character called Captain Marvel. And this Captain Marvel is an android from another planet. And his planet had a nuclear war. So he came to Earth to avoid that. And he befriends a teen on Earth whose name is Billy Baxton instead of Billy Batson. And he goes around fighting crime with his computer brain and his laser vision and his one really cool superpower, which is that when he says the magical activation word split Zam, his various body parts fly off from his body and go off and do things on their own. So like his right arm will fly off and go punch somebody. And then his head will fly off somewhere else and go do something else. And then his leg will go over here and will kick that guy in the butt. And all of his body parts will just like fly off around the room. And that's his superpower. He this sounds is, hilarious and awful. It, it is both of those things. It is uh, a terrible, terrible comic. And so that's basically April to November of 1966. Six issues of this Captain Marvel character exist. It's awful. Once again, I'm sure they literally sold like dozens of these, right? But Roy Thomas, working for Marvel, sees one on the stands one day. And he kind of like decides to do some research. He's like, how the heck are these guys able to own the legal? Does DC have the trademark for that or whatever? And he goes and he looks it up and it turns out they don't. Nobody has the, it's a completely free name. Anybody can use it. And he says to Stan, Captain Marvel should be a Marvel character, right? Like, why is there not a, a Marvel character called Captain Marvel? We should grab that and trademark it so nobody else can use it, right? So they do this. The first thing they do is contact Myron Fass and they pay him $4,500 to abandon the title so that they can grab the trademark, which is, I am sure, far and away the most money Myron Fass ever made off of one characters for anything, right? All of these terrible characters. And he agrees. He takes the money and goes away. And Stan, <laughs> Good move. Stan Lee and Gene Colan sit down in January of 1960, literally just two months after the last issue of MF's Captain Marvel, they create Captain Marvel, who is the Marvel character that everybody knows, right? He's the Kree superhero. His, his shtick is that this alien race called the Kree are planning to invade the Earth and they send some spies who are Kree soldiers in disguise to infiltrate human society and tell them all the secrets of humans' technology and everything. And Marvel is one of the spies who is sent to do that. And when he comes here, he meets some humans and he decides he likes them. In fact, he likes them better than the people that he's actually working for, for the Kree. And he switches sides. And so while the Kree are telling him, to do all of these things to like sabotage the humans, he decides he is in fact actually going to help the humans instead. And that's the first premise of Captain Marvel. That doesn't last very long. The character doesn't really work very well and he's not terribly popular. He never really gets his own title. Eventually he does Thomas, Roy Thomas and Gil Kane take over and they're like, okay, alien dude is kind of interesting, but we should make him more like the Shazam Captain Marvel. We should bring in some of those elements because part of the joke of having the name is that there are still people out there who remember this character from 15 years ago, right? Who are still excited that there's a character named Captain Marvel. So they're the ones who connect Captain Marvel to Rick Jones, right? And now Captain Marvel and Rick Jones, because of a Roy Thomas plot twist or whatever, they wind up like sharing one body. Right. And there have to, it's the whole deal with the, the mega band gauntlets that he has to like, Rick Jones has to like hit them together. And then he changes places with Captain Marvel and he goes off and floats in limbo while Captain Marvel is here. 
And then when Rick comes back, Captain Marvel is off floating in limbo. That's a reference to the idea of like, where does Billy Batson go when he says Shazam, right? That's, that's Roy Thomas kind of wondering like, what the hell was up with that character? Right. Is this one of the first times Rick Jones is coming up or no? Cause he was it, it, he'd already been the Hulk, right? Yeah. He started in the Hulk and then starting in the Avengers, he became Captain America's sidekick. And then that had ended when Captain America got his own series. And so Rick Jones was kind of kicking around with nobody using him in 1967, 68. So Thomas borrowed him and basically made him the Billy Batson of that relationship, right? Like the, the two of them were there. That character became more popular. That version of Captain started showing up more and more places. Jim Starlin took over as the creator of it in the 70s. And that's when all of the crazy cosmic awareness, Kree scroll war, all of that stuff kind of happens between the transition from Thomas to Jim Starlin, who kind of like did most of the stuff that you're kind of familiar with, with that character. And it's Jim Starlin who writes the first Marvel graphic novel is the death of Captain Marvel in 1982, where Captain Marvel dies from space cancer. Right. That's and like that, the that, one thing that I think they bring up. He's one of the few characters who Marvel's more or less left mostly dead because it's like the one big story that people still remember about. Right. Exactly. And it, like I said, it was the first successful graphic novel. It's the first one. It's, it's not the first ever graphic novel, but it's Marvel's first graphic novel and one of the first ones to make a bunch of money. It kind of like established what the what the publishing standards for graphic novels were going to be. So once again, now the name is kicking around out there again, right? Captain Marvel is dead. And Marvel has, at this point, established copyright ownership of the name Captain Marvel, right? So I want to jump over. We'll come back to Marvel's use of this character, but I want to talk quickly about what DC is doing at this point, right? Yeah. Um, so DC goes back at, at the time that Marvel now has Marvel, the, the Kree character. DC at this point realizes that the Shazam Captain Marvel, it's been 18 years at this point. They haven't really noticed, but like the rights are still out there, right? And they decide that it would be a good idea to license from Fawcett's right holders the original 40s and 50s comics. They could reprint those and make some money from them. So they go back to Fawcett's rights holders and they license the Captain Marvel character for this. They license the old stories for this, which Marvel, of course, had no interest in doing. And they decide to do some digest-sized reprints. They quickly discover, according, you know, when they wind up with a you know, legal declaration from Marvel, that they're not allowed to use the name Captain Marvel on the cover of the comic. They can call a character Captain Marvel as much as they like for it, but the trade dress, the idea that like you could have a comic called Captain Marvel, that is now owned by Marvel outright. So now DC starts putting all of its Captain Marvel stuff under the title Shazam, right? That's their make-do solution to the problem that they don't own the rights to that. Those reprints sell really well. They're really popular. Everybody's very excited to back in print because it's been, you know, almost 20 years since anybody's seen some of these. And a lot of old timey fans have grown up and have some money now and they want to collect these and they're really excited. And they sell so well that DC goes back to Fawcett's rights and says, you know what? Not only do we want to do reprints, we want to bring this character back. We want to actually like write some new stories with it. And they do. They establish an entire alternate Earth the same way that throughout the, all of the Justice League's history, all of their new characters that they arrived like came with their own planets, right? So you had all the Justice Society on Earth 2, and you had the Freedom Fighters on Earth X, and all the, you know, everybody else. The Shazam characters 
all wind up on Earth S and Superman goes and visits them and teams up and Superman and Captain Marvel get to like fight each other and it's tremendous. And once again, so successful that DC actually then turns around and licenses the Shazam characters to CBS as part of their Saturday morning adventure series, right? So you get the Shazam Isis adventure hour in the 70s with Jackson Bostwick starring as Captain Marvel and everything. That all sells very well for a while. The trouble is Fawcett's contract with DC means every time the character appears, DC owes the money. It's not like they can just like pay once and then use the character anywhere they want for it. It's literally every time you have to pay. And eventually that excitement about bringing the character back starts to kind of fall off to the point where, geez, we got to pay to use him again. We'd rather just not go through that effort. So they stop using him by the late 70s. And so by like 1979, DC isn't really using those characters anymore. So what is Fawcett doing at this point? Like, are they still around or is it just... Are, the rights to those Fawcett characters and concepts are owned by the company kind of like Ace Fawcett, which just publishes magazines at this point. They don't do comics at all. They own like some history magazines and some like pro NRA rifle magazines and just a bunch of other like specialty magazines. And that's basically what they publish. They're completely out of the comic book business entirely. Gotcha. Why does DC eventually stop just suing anyone who's similar to Superman? Or do they just decide to stop? They, at, by the time that anybody else is really doing anything, the people who are ripping off Superman at that point are making homages to him, right? As opposed to literally trying to like steal his sales, right? By the time you see characters like Supreme or somebody like that coming along, who are their own versions of Superman for this. At that point, it's not a question of we're ripping off the character. It's we're doing a tribute to them, right? And from DC's perspective, that's not a threat to our sales. If anything, that just makes us look better. It's a reminder how important our characters are, right? At that point, doing parodies, doing alternate versions of them kind of like changes in their viewpoint from you are trying to steal our sales to you are acknowledging that we are the best and doing kind of like a reference, a historical reference or an homage to our well-established character who at this point you can have no impact on their sale, right? Once Superman's 40 years old as a character, nobody's going to change anything. Nobody's going to forget Superman and replace him with Supreme or something, right? Gotcha. They that don't makes see sense. that. It's not a threat anymore, right? So That makes total sense. All right, so I think we were still talking about right, 79. We're in 1979 and DC has stopped using Captain Marvel or stopped using Shazam because he costs too much because like their deal with Fawcett kind of sucks at this point. And so at this point, back over in Marvel, there is a new Captain Marvel, right? Like we killed Marvel in 1982 and that was done in part to clear space so that they could introduce a new character. And this is the Monica Rambeau Captain Marvel, right? She appears first time in the summer of 82 in a Spider-Man in, and then she joins the Avengers. And this gives Marvel, a very powerful, very kind of interesting character who is, an, who is a black woman, a relatively big deal in 1982, and introduces her as a new kind of like high-powered member of the Avengers. And for years, she remains a fairly important Marvel character. She never really kind of takes off on her own, but she's regularly appearing in the Avengers, does all of this other stuff, and then keeps the name until 1990 when she basically stops using the Captain Marvel name and then starts appearing again using various other superhero names. She's like, she's been Photon, 
and then she was Pulsar, and then she was Spectrum. She's been a bunch of other characters named for it, but for you know a decade or so, she is the Captain Marvel, basically using the same rights that the Kree version did, right? In 1993, you have Son of Marvel. Okay, the story's really complicated for it, but effectively, Son of Marvel, who is Janice Vell. He shows up and he takes the name Captain Marvel. And then the Captain Marvel name throughout the 90s and 2000s gets bounced around to a bunch of different characters, most of whom are not very good. For a while, you have a couple of other descendants of Marvel who are using it. You've got Novar, you've got the Civil War dude who was so terrible. And like the name never really seems to stick to any. And we'll come back in a moment to the one character it does actually stick with. But by this point, DC goes back after the crisis. It's now 1987. And after the crisis, DC, they go back to Fawcett again. It's now been eight years that nobody has seen the Shazam Captain and say, hey, we'd like to try again with this, but we need a new contract. It does not involve so much money going out for this. You haven't made any money off the character in eight years. You might as well do this new deal with us, which at least gives you something. And the Fawcett people are like, well, that makes sense. Sure, why not? And they relicense to DC. And so the Shazam Captain Marvel, who once again has to appear under the trade dress of Shazam, but can still call himself Captain Marvel in the comics, returns to the DC universe after the crisis. And that's when Jerry Ordway comes in and several other very cool writers and artists work on it. And there's a really excellent series that kind of like starts in the late 80s and runs through the 90s using that character. In 1991, DC goes back to Fawcett one more time and says, you know what? This is really working for us. We're making some money. Tell you what, we don't even want to license this from you. How much will it cost us to just buy him outright? And at this point, Fawcett is so distant from the character. There's nobody at Fawcett's corporate management, their rights holders at this point, who has ever had anything to do with this character. DC waves a check in front of them and they take it. In. And so since 1991, DC has outright owned the Shazam characters, the entire Fawcett line of characters outright for cash and have no longer have any reason to deal with Fawcett or to deal with licensing at all. Right. And so that's why just last year we were able to have a Shazam Captain Marvel movie. Right, exactly. That leads us to the one who is still actually using the name. Who is Carol. Carol Danvers. Carol Danvers. So Carol Danvers has been part of the Captain Marvel story since the very earliest days, right? She first appears in March of 1968 in like, I don't know, at the point, like she's in like the fourth or fifth Captain Marvel story at all for this. She is the romantic love interest of Captain Marvel, but is also kind of a rival to him because he is at that point working undercover. He has taken on a secret identity of a dead scientist and he's working for NASA and the Kree are trying to get him to figure out how good the human space program is, right? In 1968, so that they'll know when they come to invade. And so he is secretly kind of like helping the humans while pretending to feed information to the Kree and Carol Danvers is like the security chief at the NASA base that Marvel is doing all of this stuff from, right? So she has this kind of like relationship with both of his identities. She thinks the scientist that's his secret identity is kind of a loser, but boy, that Captain Marvel guy sure is handsome and charming kind of thing. And she gets swept off her feet a couple of times, but she kind of like represents law and order in this series, right? She's the one that like he has to keep fooling about the, the, the space invasion in so she kicks around throughout that series for years. And then in the 70s, by the time that like Captain Marvel, 
kind of abandoned his supporting cast and taken off into space, Gene Conway creates a new series. Marvel has heard from DC or from rumors that there is a plan afoot, supposedly by DC's writers, to kind of snipe some of Marvel's trademarks by gender flipping them, right? So that like Marvel doesn't have a character at this point, does not have a character called Spider-Woman, right? Or Iron Woman or anything like that, right? For those. And they have heard, this rumor turns out to be completely not true. Marvel believes it at the time that DC plans to make characters using like the female names of some of their characters to kind of like mess with their copyright for this. So Deep Marvel's response to that is to create a Spider-Woman. And one of the other characters they create is Ms. Marvel, who will kind of like protect the feminine alternative name to Captain Marvel in case they ever decide to use it for this. And so Gene Conway winds up writing a single issue story about Carol Danvers getting superpowers and Stan likes it. And the, whoever else the editor was at the time, I think at this point was Marv Wolfman at the time says, yeah, that's a pretty good story. And they wind up giving both Spider-Woman and Ms. Marvel actual. Turns out DC had no intention of do, doing this and where that rumor came from remains pretty much a complete mystery. But as it turned out, it wound up contributing two new characters to the Marvel Universe uh, who have stuck around for quite some time. So Ms. Marvel is basically Carol Danvers exposed to a weird Kree device that gives her superpowers that are very similar to Captain Marvel's, and she gets her own series. That lasts for about 20 issues, gets canceled, sales aren't that good. She winds up joining the Avengers. She has a run in the Avengers that spectacularly badly when uh, she is mind controlled by a bad guy and taken off to limbo in a story that Chris Claremont hated so much that he wrote a second story in the X-Men that basically undid all of it and makes her a supporting character for the X-Men for years. That character continues to appear years and years under various other names. She's called Binary and Warbird and a bunch of other things. And she finally, in 2012, gets the name Captain Marvel when Kelly Sue DeConnick starts a new series starting her. And that's the character now who has become such a sufficiently big deal that she's now got her own movies and, you know, has Brie Sheldon and all that going on. That's yeah. all just in the last six or seven years. So, yeah. And Miss Marvel as a name has also gone on first. I think she thing okay. used it and then Moonstone used yep. it for a while. And then finally it's being used now by Kamala Khan in a pretty, pretty great series. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent character. So that brings us to today where we have two different Captain Marvels released in theaters within, you know, a few years of each other or a few months of each other. Right. I think. I mean, DC basically has almost given up on the use, right? It has no value to them anymore. There's no point in continuing to call your character something other than what you're allowed to name a movie or a comic book after, right? At this point, the character has been sufficiently separated from the name that almost nobody refers to him as Captain Marvel anymore. Captain Marvel basically belongs outright to Marvel at this point. And the character name of Shazam has now, for good or ill, as much as I hate it, you know, been permanently attached to the original version. And I don't think that that will never get undone, right? There's no reason for Marvel to ever to have a character who can't even say his own name. It's a weird name for a character, Shazam. Yeah, it doesn't it, it doesn't make much sense without changing into a secret identity. Yep. Okay, well, thanks so much. That was the history of Captain's Marvel. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks, Darren. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you all next time. Thanks for hanging out.